July 26th. That's the release date for this episode of Datages. Why is that important? Stick around for this special edition of Datages Entrepreneur's Corner and find out. You know, when I was your age, go ask your mother. I know you don't like it. It builds character. How many times do I have to tell you? I'm not just talking to hear my own voice. Hello, listener, and welcome to Datages. I'm your host, Chad Hagel. And if you are looking for some fatherly wisdom for your career, your family, or any other aspect of your life, then you've come to the right place. If you want to learn more about Datages, find additional content, submit questions or feedback to me, or if you want to know if that mental picture you have of me after hearing my voice matches my real face, visit datages.com. Thanks for being here. And before you listen to our podcast, please listen to your father. Datages friends and family, welcome to Entrepreneur's Corner. As you can see, this episode of The Corner is coming to you not from the Datages studio, but on the road. I'm in Claremont, California, where my son Camden had college football recruiting camps this weekend. This week, we continue our July series in honor of Disability Awareness Month in the United States and continue our international engagement with the Alcott family from Australia. Martin Alcott, who joined us on our most recent episode of Datages, is back. And this time, he brought another part of the Alcott Brain Trust, his son, Zach. They're here today to share with us their dual businesses, get skilled access, and the field, and to talk about the potential entry of these successful Australian enterprises, which focus on opportunities for individuals with disabilities in the workplace into the U.S. market. And why is our release date important? On today's date, July 26, 1990, 33 years ago, President George Bush, that's George H.W. Bush, signed the Americans with Disabilities Act and made this groundbreaking legislation into law. If it wasn't for this day 33 years ago, we probably wouldn't be having a discussion like this. Martin, Zach, I'm so happy you could be with us on this significant day to celebrate what has been accomplished across continents in terms of both awareness and access for individuals with disabilities. Thank you for joining us. Chad, great to be back. I really enjoyed our chat the other day. Hope the listeners have had a chance to review it and they've learned something about disability, but really great to be here. And it's even better that I've got one of my great sons here, Zach, as well. G'day, Chad. I'm just flattered that I've made the Brains Trust. Um, Thank you for having (laughs) me on. Absolutely. Well, the way your dad put it in our last episode, it's you and your brother that have all the answers for him. Well, yeah, I think that just comes hand in hand of being a, being a son. So even if we don't know the answers, you just say it with confidence and uh, get away with it. Absolutely. That's great. That's great. Well, gentlemen, you both are experts. Uh, you both have a lot of experience uh, in awareness and activism around disability, both in the workplace and in society in general. Uh, what have you seen over the last couple of decades in terms of progress for people with disabilities? And where do you still see the greatest challenges and room for improvement? 
I think, Chad, the best way to explain it, and we're getting a, probably a little bit technical here, but we've moved from the medical model of disability uh, more towards the social model of disability. And let me just quickly explain the medical model of disability. Uh, in its term, it's very much designed around labels. Um, and, you know, someone with a disability is diagnosed with a X condition. And the reason why that can be an issue is it very much puts limits and expectations on um, people with disability. And secondly, it's very inwards facing. So it's the person with the disability that needs fixing or we need to, the person with disability needs to work on themselves so they can integrate within society. Now, the social model of disability is very much based on the environments in which we create dictate someone's disability. And what I mean by that is when we think about the built environment, um, out, out, outside, cityscapes, um, shopping centres, train stations, airports, um, how accessible you make them will impact on somebody's disability. So if there's less barriers, the person's disability is less relevant. Um, if there's more, ba uh, more barriers, the disability is more uh, exacerbated. And the cool thing about the social model of disability is it's very outwards facing, kind of what I just explained. It's the environments that we create. The cool thing about it is it's everyone's role and responsibility to create these environments that people with disability can thrive in. And the same goes with the workplace. It's not just your built environment, ramps and rails. It's also people, culture, um, hearts and minds. So we're moving towards that. Um, we've still got a ways to go. Um, you know, uh, in Australia, uh, people use the word journey a lot. We're on a journey uh, to uh, disability inclusion um, and people, yeah, people need to uh, kind of continue to understand, you know, the social model of disability, but also just understanding disability and, you know, what, what, what it is. And, you know, it's not a dirty word. Um, you can say the word disability, you can say disabled and just kind of, create that confidence and, and and just really quickly as well, a big learning that everyone can do, you know, when we think about disability access and inclusion, when we're creating products, venues, infrastructure uh, and programs is have access in the front of your mind at the start uh, because that's when it's going to be the most successful. And, you know, especially over the last two to three years, I've really noticed that people are planning access and inclusion, disability inclusion at the start, and it's becoming so much more seamless and successful. And there's a lot of really cool um, ideas that come from that because people are excited to build it in, not a bolt on at the end, like, oh, and now I need to make something, you know, accessible. Or now we've got to include people with disability after we've had this really great idea. That's so remarkable. It's brilliant, actually. And uh, if we're on a journey, as you say, I would say that you gentlemen are, are Sherpas, uh, certainly taking us to the top of the, the mountain. And uh, I liked a couple of things you said that I want to highlight. One is that I think in any circumstance, not just when you're talking about disability, labels equal limitations. And taking the labels and the stigma off of individuals is so fundamental um, when you're dealing with sensitive issues of this nature. And then when you talk about the societal approach and the societal level of responsibility, it's very interesting. And I don't know if I've ever thought about it in that way, that we really create disability through the nature of the environment. And if the environment accommodates individuals of all levels, limitations, et cetera, there's no such thing as a disability anymore. You're enabling somebody to perform successfully within the environment. So I think that's fantastic. And 
as we learned in our last episode of Datages, your family to really personalize this was thrust into the, the ecosystem of disabilities through Zach, your younger brother, Dylan, who was born with a spinal tumor and paralyzed from the waist down as an infant. And Martin, we heard extensively about your experience as a father. Zach, I'm, I'm really curious to hear your experience as an older brother going through those early days when things were really touch and go for Dylan and what it was like growing up as the older brother in your household. It's really interesting. I get this, I get this asked a lot, Chad. And to be fair, I don't know any different. I, Dylan's my only sibling. Um, I think if mum and dad had him any more kids, we'd probably kill him. Um, I think I think they capped it at the two of us. Um, and I, I honestly, I, I find it really hard to answer this because I don't know any different. And mum and dad have been so, uh, was so great at very much, I kind of always have a saying, you know, play the cards you've been dealt. And I think we've very much had that within our family. You know, it, there was a bit of a, you know, Dylan was born with a disability. It is what it is, but we're not going to let him, we're not going to let that really dictate our lives for a lack of a better terms. Like it I remember in the family. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like I remember um, Dylan, Martin got called into a, uh, into school one day and dad was thinking like, Oh God, what's, what's Dylan done? And he sat down in the teacher's office and the teacher was like, listen, we're really sorry. Dylan can't come on school camp. It was the first school camp. And Martin's like, oh, why? And it's like, oh, listen, there's going to be some bike riding and a ropes course. And Martin's like, and, and you know, he just can't come. And and Dad was like, well, no, nah, he's going to come, and I'm going to come with him, and I'm going to go through the uh, go through the the camp with him. And it wasn't so Dylan could go on the bike ride or, or go through the ropes course. It was so Dylan had that experience with his friends and that that, that those really important parts of. Um, growing up. And, and I think that's been a real through line of our family. Um, and I guess going back to your question, I, yeah, I, I didn't know any different. Mum and dad were super supportive with me. Um, you know, there was a lot of attention uh, with D in hospital, but I knew, you know, every Sunday we would go just either mum or dad would take me out, just me, and we'd go get hot chips, um, fries, um, for uh, your dad, just American listeners, and so we would have some, you know, time time together. And I and 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 that no difference mentality, I think, got me. I couldn't understand it when he got a little bit older, and you know, he is an exceptional person. People were really amazed by things that he was doing, and I just looked at it. And goes, that's just my stupid little brother like that's, that's not amazing it's does, just dealing, yeah. Like, yeah no but yeah i'm like why is this impressive like yeah, yeah he's hitting it you know he, he's playing he's playing catch in the backyard with me or or whatever like this isn't impressive i'm but playing as i got too. older <laughs> yeah. yeah he was just my annoying little brother and but as i got older i kind of realized i'm like a he's quite good at it um but b you know it is it is out of the norm of what he was doing but you know him and i are best mates like we're thick as thieves um and you know a lot a lot a lot of that is a you know we're, we're very similar um but b you know due to the environment that mum and dad created um and i don't know maybe maybe there was a little extra i didn't know parent jedi mind tricks of them instilling me to look after him so they could have a bit of time off but uh yeah it was it was 
yeah, it's it's it was it was a great it was a great upbringing, and yeah, I wouldn't wouldn't have it any other way to be honest. <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. And and Zach, your story does a great job of personalizing something that your father shared in our last episode, which was he said if there was one thing that he feels like he instilled in both of you, it's the notion that there's nothing we can't do and there's no problem we can't solve. And your story about going to the camp is is such a perfect example of how your dad made that a reality for both of you, I'm sure. Um, and, and so thank you for sharing all of that. Let's, uh, shift gears a little Chad, bit. Chad, I just wanted, please, Mark, I, I just wanted to, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to add to that. You know, I'd forgotten about that, you know, Zach and Dylan remind me of so many things, but just for your daddages out there that, you know, have a couple of kids like you do. I also went on Zach's camp. They were asking for some volunteers. And, uh, I think Zach, you went to Castlemaine jail, which was a a jail in regional Victoria, which was a, an original gold mining town. And you, you actually slept in the cells and things like that. And they asked for family volunteer, you know, family members to go along as volunteers. And we had a great time. And, you know, it was such a great experience for me, both going on Zach's camp and also on Dylan's camp. You, you get to see your kids in their own environment and, and uh, interacting. And we had a lot of fun, but, you know, it was important that, um, you know, Zach tells a great, story about how much he loves his brother and he doesn't know any difference but it was important to make sure that Zach wasn't feeling alienated because of all the extra attention you know fries on Sunday was great but you know he wasn't potentially able to do all the other stuff the you know the Monday through to Saturday because of of what we had to go through with Dylan so you know it's nice that he he remembers that um you know I I went on Dylan's camp and it was gruesome, Chad. I had to share a room on Dylan's camp with like 12, 10-year-olds. And I'll tell you what, they smell. They really, really smell. At least in the jail cell, I got my own cell. I was in solitary confinement. It was a much better experience. Well, I can relate to everything you just said, Martin, because if I look <laughs> over my left-hand shoulder right now, I see my son's dirty socks from his football camp <laughs> hanging in the sink. And I think I can smell them from here. Luckily, this is not smell-o-vision. So no one else has to suffer through that. But I'm just to your point, I'm exactly the same thing right now. I'm sitting in Claremont, California at a football camp for college recruiting for my younger son after having had an amazing journey that has just come to an end with my older son, who's arriving at Stanford next week to start playing football there. And I've had amazing experiences and fond memories of the journey with him. And now I'm getting to enjoy it all over again with my younger son, Camden. So you know, thank you for sharing those universal lessons that really are meaningful to all of us as parents. Um, let's shift gears now. Let's talk a little bit more about the professional realm. Um, you both have experience in major established corporate environments in brand building, marketing, advertising, sales, distribution at a very high level. Martin, you've worked with brands like L'Oreal, Adidas, Mizuno, Russell Athletic, many others. And Zach, you've been at some of the strongest brands in the world, uh, Glenn Fittich, Hendrix, which happens to be my wife Nina's and my favorite gin, by the way, and Glenn Fittich, as I said, and, and Red Bull, um, which is probably one of the strongest brands on the planet. Um, how have both of you found that that big corporate experience and the roles that you played have translated into what you're doing today. Maybe Martin, you can start, and Zach, I'd love to hear your perspectives as well. Thanks, Chad. Yeah, it was very exciting to represent these brands. I mean, I had a great career at L'Oreal, which was in the in the hairdressing side of things, and then one day I got 
a call from a headhunter and I thought, there's no way I want to leave L'Oreal. They were talking about moving me overseas to, to work over in Paris in their head office. And suddenly they threw these catalogs on the on the desk and they were these Adidas or Adidas catalogs, as you guys say. And I was like, where do I sign? It was like a boy's own dream. We were just preparing to outfit the Australian team for the Barcelona Olympics. Um, you know, they sponsored a lot of football teams. Uh, I had um, Steffi Graf and and Stefan Edberg out for the Australian Open in terms of you know, big Adidas athletes. And it was just crazy good working for organisations like that. I think they're really good in giving you a great understanding of process, you know, forecasting, budgeting, um, the disciplines around marketing and advertising. And whilst when you go and work for yourself, you're far more agile uh, you don't have to move quite so slowly. You don't have to follow so many brand rules. You do still follow those brand rules and intuition when you're doing your marketing and your advertising. You still follow those disciplines that were so sometimes arduous at L'Oreal when you were forecasting how many bottles of shampoo we needed for the next nine years and things like that. And you'd still follow them because they're the right way to do things. And the great thing about having a diverse range of, of organizations that I worked with is that Everyone did things very similar, but also differently. So when you start your own organization, start your own businesses, whether it be a startup or whatever, it's a great opportunity to pick and choose from those experiences and hopefully you know, make the right decisions based on that experience. I didn't know you got headhunted. I was quite similar. I, got, I was at Red Bull. Uh, so Red Bull was my first uh major employment i would say out of university uh once again college i'll do the translating for our, our american friends we call our college uni here um and uh worked at red bull for almost four years and uh you know learn a lot about that Mar red bull's a funny one they like to say we're a marketing company that sells an energy drink and i think that was a really interesting learning for us here at gsa we like to think of ourselves as a bit of a disruptor model um and i think going in and being in quite different industries and then coming into the disability space has really um, put us in good stead because we've got quite a different outlook on how we engage with people, how we deliver work, um, how we build our brand and our team, um, which has really set us, set us up for success. Um, from day one, obviously having Dylan strapped to the company uh, really helps. Um, but regardless of that, our brand's really grown from more than just uh, Dylan. Uh, and then from the William Grant's perspective, so just really quickly, Hendrix, Glenfiddich, Sailor Jerry, all sit under a family-owned independent distillery called uh, William Grant & Sons. So uh, it's been a family-owned business since 1886. And I guess reflecting that's a life lesson for me being like hey if i can if these if these angry drunk scots can put up with their family since 1886 <laughs> i can definitely put up with my uh my dad and my brother as a family business <laughs> but in but in all seriousness William grant and sons and and their products super premium probably in that mid-range boutique they're not your diageos of the world like big corporate um but really punch above their weight class in their brand distribution um, and, and quality of product. And I think I've really kind of kept that mantra with the work that we do, you know, really high quality work. We have always said we do punch above our weight category. You know, we've been working with um, 
major global corporate uh, businesses, your Nikes, um, your Amazons, Googles of the world. Um, but then also federal government. Um, I won't take up the next two hours of talking about the difference between Australian <laughs> government and uh, US government. And yeah, we would uh, never and, find a, a, a resolution there. Yeah, welcome <laughs> to the geopolitical arm of this uh, of this podcast. But um, uh, we, we've been working with federal government. You know, within two three years of of, of our business launching, which has been you know hu- a huge success and probably once again going to that punching above our weight category but uh you know going back to your question i think the big business um side of things is you can always as you're growing you and to martin's point you look into the future being like okay cool we're here now but those learnings that you had as a big business but then also when you when you first start out you know from a management side of things like i always think you know when I when I manage my team, like what would have I wanted when I was 22, 23, starting starting at Red Bull, and being able to pass that knowledge onto on onto them is has been I found really important and and, and kind of crafted out my leadership skills. Absolutely, there's a couple of things that I pull out of what you gentlemen shared that I see as really fundamental to what you're doing. One is because you've worked in big business and for big brands, um, you have that as a calling card. Uh, And what I mean by that is oftentimes when there is an organization that has a social value as part of their focus, they can be seen as outsiders, outside the corporate realm, do-gooders, crusaders. And I think that oftentimes that creates a resistance on the part of major corporations in engaging with a firm that has a social component to what they're trying to achieve. And by virtue of you gentlemen having this big corporate background and having worked in brand building and knowing what it takes to build a brand successfully, I think it probably lowers that fear factor uh, and the resistance or hesitation that the executive leaders of these organizations might have if someone came in off the street who didn't have that background that you have. So I see that as a, a real value proposition that you bring to the space. The other thing that I found interesting about your perspective that you shared, Zach, is uh, that you got an opportunity to see how a family-run business can become an enterprise. And I think as you're growing your own business, it gives you that line of sight for what's really possible, and it doesn't make that seem unachievable or impossible because you've already seen it in action. And that's a great thing because... Oftentimes, I think entrepreneurs are limited by a set of what I've referred to in past episodes of Datages as limiting fallacies, the can't perspective versus the can perspective. And oftentimes, if you have that visibility to know what's possible, you can blow away all of those limitations that others may have, setting blinders in terms of what their capacity is and what the the total line of sight and, and level of achievement could be for their organization. So I think that those are gifts that both of you gentlemen bring to the table that mean a lot to what you're pursuing today. And I see those as, as great uh, core value propositions that, that you bring to the organization. So from there, let's get to it. Uh, gentlemen, this is the, the time on, on the entrepreneur's corner when I'm going to turn the mic over to you. And this is your pitch moment. I want you to share with me and share with the rest of the Datages friends and family what it is 
that your dual business platforms of Get Skilled Access and the field, what it is that they present as an opportunity uh, for the corporate world and for the world in general. What is your value proposition and what is it that you guys bring forth? Zach, just before you start pitching, just remember when you're talking to Chad, I looked him up, his net worth is around sort of Mark Cuban-ish type of thing. So when you're doing your, your pitch for uh, VC funding, just bear that in mind on this uh, episode of Entrepreneur's Corner. If there's a guy <laughs> named Mark in Cuba, I think you're talking about the right guy. <laughs> Excellent. As if, I'll be nervous if you tell me you're on a basketball team. Um, apart from that, yeah, okay, cool. He's the equipment manager for a junior football team, though. Yes. Hey, <laughs> hey, nothing wrong with that. We all got to start somewhere. Uh, brilliant. Cool. So uh, let's start with Get Skilled Access first because we've been, uh, I guess, around the longest. Uh, so Get Skilled Access or, or, or GSA is uh, it's fondly known. We're a disability access and inclusion consulting company. Uh, we work with both private and government organizations to work with them to remove the barriers that people with disability are face. That could be from an education standpoint, community engagement standpoint, stakeholder engagement standpoint, education standpoint, you name it. We work with people to include more people with disability and accessibility needs. And you might ask yourself, you know, why do we need to do this? Um, it might have been uh, spoken about in the previous podcast, but 20% uh, of the uh, Australian population, one in five, two, we're quite small. I'm quite embarrassed now when I say this. Uh, 4.6 million Australians uh, live with a disability. There's only 26 million Australians um, in total. But if you look at that globally, uh, about 15% of the world's population have a disability. And that number rings pretty true across that one in five number across the globe. So when we think about America, that one in five Americans living with some form of both physical or non-physical disability. So from a, from a business perspective, are you thinking to yourself, am I potentially turning away every fifth American due to my products, services, infrastructure not being um, accessible or inclusive? Or am I turning away every fifth potential candidate to fill a job role? Um, so we started GSA on the premise of that to welcome or, or remove those barriers for people with disability. And as I mentioned before, we, we are a bit of a disruptor model. Uh, you haven't uh, met Dylan. Uh, Dylan's definitely got a way of words and uh, quite charismatic. But when he came to Martin and I seven and a half years ago, he was like, mate, I want to make disability sexy. Now, we don't get away with that. We say contemporary. But he felt that the way that disability was spoken about and viewed was very old, dusty, 1940s, Zimmer frame model of disability. And that didn't reflect him or his community. So we really wanted to bring it into 2016 at the time when we launched the business, um, but really bring it into a more contemporary view of disability. And that's been a real through line of our business. We work with businesses to help them understand universal design, um, the social model of disability, how to develop products um, to be more accessible for people with disability. So that was one of the reasons why we started GSA. Another reason why we started GSA was Dylan was tired of well-meaning yet still non-disabled people speaking to other non-disabled people around what people with disability want and need. And um, We've got about 50 staff across Australia now, and of that 50, 85% uh, have a disability, 
with the rest of us having a uh, you know strong connection to disability, family members, etc. Um, and that's quite different, if I'm being brutally honest, that we have um, subject matter expert consultants, um, experts in their field consulting on um, uh, all things disability access and inclusion, but the fact that they also have disability in that lived experience, no one else really is doing that at the scale in which we're doing this here in Australia. Um, so, you know, we've got currently uh, 45 projects on the go um, across, you know, the likes of Nike, as I said, uh, a lot of Commonwealth federal government work. Uh, we've worked with um, Amazon, Google, uh, Meta. So, you know, it, 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 it's quite a big um, uh, book of clients um, and continually growing. So that's probably it from a GSA perspective. I'm sure no, a lot of people have a lot of questions afterwards, but um, it's probably time now to hand over the field because the field was an idea from GSA, um, but and almost the missing piece of GSA. Yeah, a couple of notes before we move on from GSA. One is, uh, sure. I think that Dylan is definitely living out uh, exactly what his mission was to make disability sexy. I've seen his Instagram, I've seen his travels, I've seen him uh, hanging out at UFC in Vegas with Volkanovski. I've seen him hanging out with Dom Dalla in the DJ booth. Uh, I've seen his lovely partner uh, and her presence in his life. He's he's definitely managing to make disability sexy, to say the least. And uh, the other point that I'll make is there's something that I have said before in a different context, and you've brought it into a very new context for me, and maybe one that's even more important than the way I said it before. When I talk about nonprofit organizations in particular, I always talk about the notion that if your HR doesn't follow your mission, you don't actually have a mission. And what I've intended by that in the past is by saying, if you aren't investing in the salaries of hiring people to make it their job to do what you're trying to achieve, you aren't actually achieving anything. But what you have changed for me, you've turned the dial up a few notches in saying it's not just about hiring people. It's not just about spending the money to bring in that HR to achieve your mission, but hiring people that live your mission, hiring people that are aligned with your mission. It's one of the most powerful things I've ever heard about organization building and creating a culture. And I firmly believe that culture is the single greatest asset of any organization. And so I, I commend you for the achievement that you've made in that way, internally within your organization, even setting aside all the work you've done, all the people you've worked with and everything you've accomplished outside the organization. Yeah, thank, thank you, Chad. I think, well, I know our, our people are our lifeblood. Our business is built around, um, you know, as a consulting firm, uh, you, you, you're selling people and time and uh, we, we, we would be nothing without our people. You know, I'm a little embarrassed that I'm here and not our people because they are such uh, phenomenal, uh, I've said people too much, but they are and they, they have such great stories but such great skill sets um, and really experts in the field um, and to your point around the passion side of things. So they both really care about the work and deliver to such high standards because of the outcomes. And it's not, and because they know that if we do a good job um, developing or designing this shopping center, 
there's going to be more people like them being able to go into that shopping center independently and dignified and engaged um, uh, with with that shopping center. So everyone here is, you know, super passionate about the work. No one's here just collecting a paycheck. Um, that's for sure. Well, adage number one was surround yourself with people who are better than you are. So you're exhibiting good leadership by doing so, and you're a great spokesperson for all of them. Trust me in that regard. Uh, so speaking of great spokespeople, Martin, uh, tell us about the field. Chad, thank you. Before I go into the field, I do want to just brag a little bit about one of the jobs that Zach has recently done. Well, he's been doing it for a couple of years, and that is with the Formula One uh, Corporation and with the Australian Formula One Grand Prix. So. I, I want to highlight that, not just because of the great work Zach's done, but people are probably thinking, well, God, what's accessibility got to do with the Formula One Grand Prix? It's noisy. People are racing around in fast cars. Zach has organized it uh, last year's for the Formula One Grand Prix we had recently in Australia in April. He organized sensory rooms. So people who were neurodiverse, um, such as people who are autistic, could go and enjoy it. But if they needed some time out, they could go into this sensory room and have some quiet time. He organized a stand specifically for people who were mobility device users so they could still have a great view and enjoy the, the spectacle of the Formula One whilst not worrying about, you know, looking at people's backsides because, you know, in the crowd they didn't have a, a special stand. They, uh, he organized, which was probably the highlight on one of the evenings, he did a grid walk for a couple of hundred kids who were neurodiverse. They bust them all in and all the, the teams like Red Bull and Ferrari and and Aston Martin, they turned off all their jackhammers, they turned off all their music, they didn't start the cars for an hour. So these people who had some sensory issues could come for a pit walk and they were outside, the teams loved it, they were outside holding up the tyres and, and all that sort of stuff. And these are people who are consumers, these are people who buy tickets to go to events and they're all going to come back, Zach. I know that they're all going to come back next year and come to the Formula One Grand Prix. They're going to spend money, they're going to buy merchandise and that. Stefano Domenicali, who's the president of the FIA, joined Zach and the team and Dylan on that grid walk. And it was a pretty miserable night, to be honest, wasn't it, Zach? It was pretty cold. It was pretty rainy. And he said, this is incredible. We should do this at every single Grand Prix worldwide. And that's the sort of benchmarks that, that Zach and the team at Get Skilled Access are making. And I mean, I'm a Formula One nut. I just absolutely love it. But I highlight that because you'd have to think if one of your clients is is the Australian Formula One Grand Prix, like what's that got to do with disability? And hopefully that makes some of the Dadages family think about, wow, you know, disability is, is around for everything. So that's enough about me bragging, not just about how good my sons are, but also about one of my favourite events that we sponsor. And, you know, I do get some nice tickets for it as well. So, Zach, let's sign that up for another 10 years. Well, I think um, I, think I just figured out where we're going to be in April. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to see if he can ring up his good mate Stefano Domenicali and see if we can get some tickets for Vegas, if there's some accessibility auditing that needs to be done around there, Zach. See what you can organize. See what we, we'll see what we can do. <laughs> so as Zach said and described so perfectly, everything happened that we, we'd get skilled access. But when uh, we all got together to talk about what this business looked like, Two of the things that Dylan, as a person with disability, highlighted that he wanted to change was around shopping and travel and also employment for people with disability. Travel can be a real limiter for people with disability uh, if they're not offered the same uh, services and opportunities as everyone else. 
still in Australia, some people with, uh, and it's starting to slowly change, but still in Australia, some people who can't transfer to a seat within a within a um, within an aircraft, unallowed to travel in their motorised uh, chairs because of batteries and things like that. But hopefully, there is some new technology where they're removing seats from planes. People with um, motorized wheelchairs can wheel in there, be strapped into that, and they can stay within their, their own chairs. I actually think, Zach, it's United Airlines in the US that's pioneering that from memory. The second, the second thing was shopping, and I think we covered that in the last episode. It's not always easy for a person with disability, you know, to, if they're neurodiverse, to go into a loud shopping center and buy their, you know, their groceries every week. But the other main thing was employment. When Dylan was at school, like most uh, counselors at school, would say, hey, maybe you can work in a call center or something like that. And that was about the only career advice that they would get. So people with disability, as I've mentioned before, Chad, they're great problem solvers. They're very entrepreneurial. And we've always spoken about employment from the very first day we started Get Skilled Access. And that came to a head about 18 months ago when one of the the ministers um, in the, you call them senators, who looked after the disability portfolio and said, look, what can we do about this employment challenge? And that's where we came up with the field. And the field is a dedicated purpose-built platform built and driven by people with disability that connects people with disability looking to work with organisations looking to employ more inclusively. And you might say, well, there's plenty of job platforms out there, Indeed, and things like that. Why don't they just go on that? So we've got a young guy that works for us, that works for Zach, and he is an incredibly competent young man. And he goes on to our biggest uh, job site here, which is called Seek, and he'll apply for a job that he's eminently suitable and qualified for. And he's blind. Ben went to bed one night with sight, woke up one morning, the next morning, and he was blind. He only has, uh, I think, 2% vision. And uh, he's very, very capable. He um, has done the Kokoda Trail twice, which is a, a, an incredible adventure of, 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 of going on this um Papua New Guinea trail that was in World War II and um, it's one of the hardest things you could ever do. It's, I think it's 80 or 90 kilometres through some of the harshest terrain you've ever seen. He's done that twice as a person who's uh, blind or has low vision. He water skis competitively behind a boat at you know, 80, 90 miles an hour. And Ben would go on and apply for the job, would ask his name, his address, his age and all that sort of stuff. And then he'd ask for his driver's licence number. And he doesn't have one because he's blind. As good as he is, our government won't give him a driver's license, um, although he obviously hasn't seen scent of a woman yet. Um, but uh, uh, he doesn't have a license, so he can't continue on with that application because this platform thinks without a license, you're either an illegal resident, you've lost your license for some reason, et cetera, and he can't continue with his application. So there's a thing we spoke about in the last episode, Chad, called unconscious bias. And what the field.jobs does is remove that unconscious bias. So Ben will write down his accessibility needs of an organisation. Organisations will register and they'll write down what their accessibility uh, offerings are. And then through the algorithm on the platform, it'll match Ben with an organisation. And then he can, do an, he can send his um, CV or his application through. He can do that through traditional method, through like a PDF or a Word document. He can do it with an audio um, CV or he can do it as a, a video CV. Now, if you saw Ben on, on a video CV, you'd go, my heavens, we have, to, we have to employ this guy. He's absolutely incredible. And then when you, Chad, get to interview Ben, 
all the fact that he's blind, um, doesn't have a license and all that is irrelevant. You're just interviewing Ben based on his skill set. So it really is a great way to connect these two groups, which have struggled in the past. We've heard for so many years, um, haven't we, Zach, that people with disabilities say, I want to work, but I never see jobs advertised for me, or I never get an interview. An organization saying, we want to employ more inclusively, but no one ever applies for our jobs. So the field is a meeting place where these two, these two, two parts of the marketplace can come together and achieve success. And it's been going really well. We launched in Australia November 9. We've had over 80,000 people through the website. Um, we've got incredible jobs for a real diverse range from factory workers and baristas to CEOs of organizations and things like that. And it's really proving uh, to be a great success. That's fantastic. And some of my favorite business models in the technology realm are marketplace plays. And what you're describing is a marketplace play. You're identifying an imperfect market. You have supply on one side, demand on the other, in this case, supply of jobs, demand for those jobs, and the connection isn't making itself. And so you're using a technology platform to facilitate, to enable, to empower that connection, and then to grow the marketplace. And that's the key to a marketplace play is can the marketplace that you create actually bolster both the supply and the demand so that you grow the entire market? And so can you help me understand in terms of your business model, how that magnifying, that multiplying effect is panning out for the field? Uh, is there a way that you can quantify or illustrate or explain to me what's been happening in Australia as a result of this marketplace that you've successfully created? Sure, Chad. We're just in the early stages. So we have definite KPIs about the two-sided marketplace, so the supply and the demand side. So the supply side is obviously people with disability. And Zach will back me up here in saying that it's been a struggle on that side of the marketplace more so than the, the supply side or the demand side for the jobs. And I say that because people with disability, unfortunately, have had such poor success in trying to find employment for so many years. You mentioned that as we're talking about, uh, you know, people are listening to us on July 26, which is the 33rd anniversary of the Americans with Disability Act. And we have a very similar thing called the DDA, the Disability Discrimination Act in Australia, which is just recently celebrated its 30-year anniversary. And in both our markets, both the US and Australia, Chad, the number of people with disability who are employed, which is between about 35 and 40% in both markets, compared to the number of people without disability employed, which is 80 to 85%, again, similar in both markets, that number hasn't changed or that difference hasn't changed for 33 years and 33 years in Australia. Now, we challenge employers to say, what's changed in 33 years? Well, number one, Dylan wasn't even born 33 years ago or he was almost born, wasn't he, Zach? Zach was only two. What mobile phone were you using back 33 years ago? There was no such thing as an internet. So how in this marketplace, this marketplace of change, in this marketplace of of swiftness in actions and things like that, how can that figure in two key markets like the US and Australia not change for 30, 33 years? I mean, 
it hasn't got to 50 or 60 or anything like that. It's just stayed the same. So it means that there's a real disconnect there. So to go back to your original question, people with disability had to learn to trust us. They had to learn that we weren't just another bunch of people trying to, you know, connect. So as that trust is slowly growing, as that trust is becoming better, we're getting more people with disability registering all the time. Actually, last week, we had a record week for registrations of people with disability. It is less difficult to convince the corporate clients, the SMEs, to come on board because they know the value or they're getting to know through the work like Zach and the team are doing, the value, the return on investment of having people with disability. But once now that we've established that trust, and a lot of that has been through the great work that Dylan does, they trust Dylan. You know, they realize that he's not just a, a spruker trying to, to sell something, that we've put time and effort and a lot of thought and research by people with disability of what works for them. So as people are coming on, we're getting some incredible testimonials, you know, like I'd been for 30 or 40 job interviews and never ever got the job. I'd applied for 100 jobs and never got an interview. I went on the field and I got employed and it's just changed my life. Stuff like that. And organizations saying, wow, why wasn't the field around years ago? So it's a slow process, but we're quantifying it by the number of organizations that are joining us as employers and then the number of, of people with disability as job seekers. And that number is growing on a weekly basis. It's quite remarkable and in a way somewhat surprising and maybe counterintuitive until you really explained it effectively there. Uh, I would have thought that the greater challenge would be the acquisition of the employers because it would seem like people who want a job want a job and they'll sign up. But I understand now what you've described, that this population of individuals with disabilities has in a way become jaded uh, by the experiences that they've had in trying to seek employment. And it's almost the enormity of the challenge, the enormity of the problem that is also the impediment to your solution until you can build that trust. And I know that you wanted to talk about core values and translation of core values and it sounds like to me, one of your core values is building trust with your customer base. Um, and and that that's going to be one of the keys to your success in any market. Yeah, absolutely. I think it falls into that. Um, you know, one of our core values is um, putting disability at the forefront of all of our decision making. And it might kind of come across quite a easy statement to make, but one that core that core value has that authenticity and it really is, um, you know, our North star in all the decision-making and, 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 and decision-making strategy, everything that we do. And it has really kept us on course uh, throughout the seven years, you know, the seven plus years with GSA and then, and then the, the birth of the field, you know, oh, it's been about two years now, time flies. Uh, but that's really been our North star is that, disability being in the forefront of our decision making. So does this have the best outcome for people with disability? And the rest kind of follows from that. The corporate, the client side of things, you know, they're engaging us for that exact reason. We want to make something better for people with disability. It could be the employment um, process, hiring, onboarding, et cetera. Or then on the flip side, it's the products or services or more broadly society. Absolutely. And uh, I think that when you talk about these core values and 
uh, you know, questions you've uh, uh, posed in terms of how uh, this will align in the U.S. market, I think all those things will hold up very effectively. Uh, and I think that the key is personalizing it and telling the value of your business proposition in the form of stories that can be tied back to individuals and really attaching a personality to it. Uh, and I think this is what uh, is the benefit of sort of the new age of marketing um, and what's going on across cultures right now through social media uh, and through the con the context that whether it's a business opportunity, whether it's a piece of content, consumers don't want to consume something until they can see that it's attached to an identity and to an individual and to someone that has a story that makes it real and makes it relevant. And, and I think that as long as you stick to that and stick to the value of what you have created for your individual users, customers uh, on your platform and telling those stories, I think you're going to find that that translates effectively, no matter what sort of accent you might speak with. Jeez, Chad, that's very Australian. There you go. <laughs> Certainly. Good on you. <laughs> so, Crikey, uh, it's a person with disability. No, we're <laughs> doing none of that. So the, um, I know that uh, one of the other things that you gentlemen wanted to focus on is the notion of brand differentiation. Uh, and I, I find your explanation of the consulting side of your business, get skilled access, and then the practical application of that to a specific domain, which is that connection point and building the marketplace between job seekers with disabilities and job suppliers uh, that can offer positions to, to individuals with disabilities through accommodations that they can offer. Uh, I am starting to very clearly understand the differentiation of the models of what you've done. But I, I think that uh, it's really going to be important for you to focus on explaining the narrative that's associated with both of your endeavors. And obviously, Get Skilled Access has been a, a, to get around longer and focusing on its broad-based objectives for a longer time with a great track record and great success. Um, you have to really hone in on how you can tell those dual stories without creating any level of confusion about what's going on between the two. Perhaps uh, we can take some time and, and talk a little bit more about how you're viewing the models of the two companies and how it relates to an entry into the U.S. market and how that sort of fits together. Yeah, I think really quickly from a GSA perspective, I was lucky enough to spend a bit of time in the States last year, uh, went to a conference in Dallas. Um, and I did find it interesting, probably the contrast, I would say, within how you actually speak about your business in um, an Australian way versus how you need to get your message across to uh, someone in the US. I find in Australia, there probably is, we're, we're quite, we undersell by nature, you would say, Martin, everything's quite, yeah, we, we're going okay, even if you're going really well, you would never tell someone you're going really well. And it is very kind of subtle and you build those relationships. I did find in the States, you have to really put it all out there very early kind of in the conversation from an engagement perspective around, you know, it's almost 
hey, you know, I'm Zach, bit of back and forth, and then you are straight into the greatest hits around who we're working with, what we're doing, change that's making. And um, yeah, I, 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 that is something that I think we need to be quite mindful of. Um, oh, is being aware of that, I should say, probably um, coming coming to the US market because there is a bit of a contrast when how you would, if we go back to branding, um, you know, position ourselves and brand ourselves when, when when speaking to um, clients, people, anyone in general uh, about the business. It's a great point, and it is a, an adjustment. And I've had to make the adjustment going the other way because if you think yeah. <laughs> Australia is challenging, try going to a Polish marketplace because I'm now doing business in Poland. And in Poland, if you're not miserable, you can't relate to somebody. Uh, their, their culture is such that uh, when your business is going when your business is going really well, it's not that your business is going well; it's that gosh, I am so busy. I just can't keep up with anything going on in my life now. Uh, it, it's, it's the nature of the culture and the nature of the way you present yourself. And so, yes, I think it's an astute observation that you really have to dial that up when you come to a U.S. marketplace and not feel like you're bragging, boasting, that it makes you egotistical. Instead, what you're really doing is defining a value proposition and demonstrating a proof of concept. We can prove to you that we can be successful here because here's our track record of success elsewhere. And that is such a fundamental part of telling a business story in order to seek investment and in order to sell services into a U.S. market with credibility. The credibility is established through a narrative of past success. I think, Chad, on brand differentiation, a great way to look at it is if we were pitching Get Skilled Access in the field to you. It'd be two separate meetings. It's uh, a great way to do it is if people are looking to advertise their jobs on the field, which they should be, we would say, great, there's some resources at the back end of the field that you can go on, have a look at the field.jobs and it talks about you know, how, to, how to talk to people with disability the best way, some workplace accommodations that you can make to make the transition for people with disability. And then if an organization said, oh, look, we had a look at your, your resources, but we'd like to do a bit more and learn a bit more about it before we start employing people, we would then say, hey, guys, you know, there's this organization, Get Skilled Access, which, which can you can dive in deeper into the disability pond. They can help you work through that. Conversely, if Zach's working with a client and they want to improve their uh, ratio or their quota of how many people that they want to employ with a disability, if they give Zach a target that... You know, we want, we want to make 10% of the workforce um, uh, have a disability. How do we go about that? Well, Zach will work with them, but then also recommend the field and say, look, if you really want to get some immediate action and get some immediate people with disability uh, on the team, this is the best way to go about it through the field. So they work really well together, but they're also, they also exist 100% independently. So there's a question inherent in there, um, and I'm not going to be able to give you an answer, but I'm going to frame the question for you, and then give you some homework, because I think it's something that you need to do a little bit of organizational soul searching and evaluation. And that is, are these two businesses or are they one business with a fundamental transactional model and then a service and consulting model that goes behind it to empower those organizations that want to participate in the marketplace and the transactional model that you're offering. 
And I'll give you arguments on both sides. Uh, and again, these are things that you're going to have to evaluate and consider because you know your business far better than anyone else. One is by positioning the service model as something that's separate and different, you may add value to the quality, the perceived quality of those services, because it's not something that's being done as part of the transaction. It's not uh, something you're really trying to sell somebody. It's a benefit that you're offering them to help them participate in a marketplace. And maybe it really should live and breed separately and under a different name. But the flip side of that is, that's a lot to tell. That's a big story. That's a lot of words. And it may be particularly in a US marketplace where it's got to be this, that may be too much story to try to tell. And so maybe it needs to live under one brand name and needs to be a really tight pitch of this is the field. This is the transactional marketplace that we're creating. And then this is the field's additional services that it can offer to all of its corporate clients because it's got all of this experience and this back-end offering that it can provide. I, I can come up with arguments on both sides. I think as I'm talking, I might be convincing myself, but don't take my word for it, but I might be convincing myself that they belong under one brand, but I don't know. It's interesting, Chad. I feel like you've been sitting in some of our meetings, <laughs> and but both in you know Australia and the US. Um, you know, we, yeah. So um, we we originally so the field used to sit in GSA. Um, you know, as as um, with with the idea when we came up with the idea, um, and then um, uh, it has uh, grown off into its own um, brand. So uh, you know. At GSA, we we try to we claim Big Brother. So GSA Zach Fields Dylan. I don't know if that's you know, I'm giving the field <laughs> much of a compliment. Um, but no, no, no. But in all seriousness, um, yeah, you know, it's it's such a great point that you raise. Um, and I think there's also there's that stickiness and also the efficiency. You know, if we are potentially all under one roof, is it a one stop shop? And we do talk about it a bit. Um, and I know this was meant to be homework, but I hate homework. So I'm going to try to do it now, uh, is the field was almost a missing part of GSA in a way we would do all this consultancy work with organizations and government around employment. And that final piece was like, all right, we're ready. We've removed the, um, you know, we've, 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 we've done an audit of our recruitment process to remove the barriers that people with disability uh, uh, face. We've done cultural, tra uh, cultural work. Um, we've done staff training, recruitment manager training. We're ready to hire. Like we're, we're, let, let, let's, let's get this going. And before the field, there was, you know, all right, we can point you in the directions of, of, of some places that, that, that specialize in disability recruitment. Um, now they, uh, aren't performing that well. And that's a conversation for another podcast. But we kind of took the matters in our own hands and created the field and created this platform that was scalable in the sense of, you know, we can't go to every person with a disability and, and, and help them throughout the process. So to Martin's point before, how do we, you know, in the digital age, create this environment when we talk about the social model of disability, the social model of disability recruitment process 
where we've created this environment where people's uh, people's disability is less relevant and they can just present themselves forward and put their best self forward for jobs and not worry about all the additional things that come with the employment process of people with disability. And same on the flip from employers. You know, they aren't um, anxious in the interviewing process because they know beforehand how someone with disability, this person with disability likes the interviewing process to go. For example, having the questions submitted to them before the interviewing process, which is quite common for people who are autistic, for example. So they feel like they can understand the questions and nothing's coming as a surprise. So, you know, it's, it's a great question that we ra- uh, that you raise. Um, you know, we're, we're kind of going as we are in the Australian market. Uh, you know, who knows for the US, but that is, you know, I guess we do have to have homework if I make that statement. <laughs> but it's, it, it's a really great point that you raise. Well, on the other, one of the, go ahead, Martin. Chad, I was just going to say, Zach summarized it up so well then. One of the headwinds that an organization might see if the field and GSA are packaged up together is that old, you know, you want to try and eat the elephant one piece at a time, not the whole elephant. So sometimes organization, if they're making, um, Zach, I know we hate the word journey. What's another word for journey? If they're making the, the commitment to being more inclusive in their employment practices, but making a commitment to be more inclusive and accessible in their whole organization. And that would be like everything, their website, uh, you know, the way they go about their employment, hiring practices and everything like that. If you package it all up together, sometimes it might seem too daunting for an organization. If you have get skilled access as the entry into it, and then they use the field. If you have the field as the first entry into it, sometimes because disability hasn't been so well embraced uh, in the past, you know, Zach gave some stats about um, the Australian market, four and a half million. So the total addressable market for people who can work in Australia, um, which we've done a lot of research on, is about 2.2 million. So about 1.5 to 2.2 million. Putting those same uh, ratios to the US market based on your disability population. It's about 35 to 50 million Americans that have the ability to work, but potentially aren't because of, of whatever. So it's a really great question you ask. I think Zach covered it really well, and you are reading our emails. And I'm not sure what, what we're paying you 10,000 US dollars an episode for if you're asking us the questions, because we want the solutions from you. But what we need to do is, is have a look at how potentially the market would would best embrace it because yeah it could be packaged up as a as a you know whole thing or do we keep going on the separate thing well let me add one more uh, variable or one more perspective which is uh, that of uh, funding sources um, I know that you want to talk about venture capital funding and this is a good time to make that transition uh, with a, a notion which is that VCs and, and even angel investors that are not as uh, predatory as VCs may be, they want to own everything. Uh, if they're making an investment in your business, they don't want to feel like there's this other thing over here that they don't get to participate in. So as you're making these decisions and evaluating some of these key things, don't just think about your customer base, but also think about your investor base, because you have to be able to tell a very tight story to your investors first and foremost, in order to get the capital to get into the market 
before you ever even get the opportunity to talk to your customers. And that's where we will pick up on the next episode of Datages. If you're one of our loyal friends and family members tuning in in real time, then you know that we publish new episodes every Wednesday. And the next release date is next Wednesday, August 2nd. If you're listening after the fact, then good news. Just click the link for the next episode. I promise you don't want to miss it. We'll talk more about expansion of the field into the United States, venture funding strategies, and strategic partnerships with venture capital firms, other for-profit companies, and not-for-profit NGOs. And you're going to get to see me cry again. So don't miss that. Until then, remember, Dad may not always know what he's talking about, but he sure can sound like he does. Thank you for listening to Datages. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to visit datages.com and subscribe to the Datages podcast to get notified for future episodes. You can rate or review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Why? Because I'm your father and I said so. Just a little respect is all I ask for. I put a roof over your head and food on the table and what do you do? No, tell me exactly what do you do because I'm doing everything. I'm paying for everything. No, get back here. Get back here right now.